Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now identity politics appear to have an increasing grip on British politics and indeed our culture. But who is behind identity politics and how do they maintain its extraordinary and growing influence? Ben Cobley is the author of this book which is called The Tribe, The Liberal Left and The System of Diversity. He is a journalist, he's also a former Labour activist and he is the author of a blog called A Free Left Blog and he's with me now. Ben, thank you very, very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Um, the book is called The Tribe, so let's start at the beginning. Who, what is the tribe? Well, the tribe is, I mean, it's in the subtitle, the liberal left, yeah. um, as I call it, or you could say in its full title, getting very wordy, um, the progressive liberal left. Now, I think of this as, a, as an identifiable group, but on the other hand, I think the way that um, we can identify it um, means that we can all sort of fall in and out of it as almost as we like by kind of picking up its idioms, which I, for me are based around identity politics and yeah. about favouring certain groups and protecting certain groups and more generally indirectly sort of unfavouring the other groups, you know, because it's a sort of zero-sum game. Yeah. You said uh, the, the subtitle is the system of diversity. So what is this system? I mean, th that tends to imply a kind of practical, a, a very practical system. Yeah, that's quite an interesting question. I, I think it's, I, I call it like a system of relations. Yeah. Um, so you can say like in a, you know, in a call and spot response sort of situation, say the liberal left, someone who's of a liberal left disposition will make a call and then you can get a predictable response. Say if you're on Twitter and um, I mean recently we've had John Cleese getting into trouble yeah. with him talking about um, London not feeling very yeah. English anymore. If you say that's racist, immediately you'll get a, a positive response right. from the rest of the gang. Right. So in terms of, that, that's how I see it in terms of being systemic right. in a way that it's predictable. Um, but also um, that there are, there are relations not just between, say, people on the liberal left side of politics, but then to like the representatives of the favoured identity groups. And there's also, I would say, like a call and response that goes on between those two, um, those two groups. And um, it, it, it kind of, it, again, it makes it kind of systemic in character. And f sorry if I'm waffling with this. No, not at um, But it kind of makes it systemic in character because those representatives tend to act in a certain way. Right. In order for those, for those relations to work in a predictable fashion, they have to uh, represent their groups as being victims, mm. you know, almost universal victims of society yeah. and of the, of the unfavoured groups of the system. And if they do that, then just everything sort of, sort of fits in. They can claim maximum victimhood and the liberal left who is overseeing and supporting them you know, has a justification for doing that. So uh, I think we sort of know, but for, for, for clarity's sake, who would the favoured groups be then? So we're looking at um, uh, uh, firstly women, uh, non-white people, uh, gay people. Um, I think immigrants is, a, is an interesting category. It's more, I would say, sort of people who appear to be immigrants. Yes. So in contrast to sort of 
you might say native um, English or British people. Right. Um, also Muslims is an important category, I, I guess, within the non-white grouping. Right. Um, and so, and the unfavoured groups would be what, straight white well, males? Well, it's us lot. You yeah. Know, right. it's, yeah, it's, it's mostly straight white males. Well, no, I'm actually, I've got favoured characteristics being gay, but apparently. Right, yes. Uh, I've got yes. protected characteristics, apparently. So, so yeah, if, if you don't, <laughs> I mean, looking at the system, if, if someone like you doesn't play up yes. to that gay identity as being a victim of society, mm. then you don't fit into the system. Yes, and, yes. and in a way, you're a traitor. Yes, exactly. To the system. I think it's particularly right because particular vitriol is actually reserved. You know, if you're if you're if you're not going to type, as it were. But so you have the groups. But so what happens then, for example, uh, if the demands of one group or the rights, whatever one group, are essentially met? You know, what what happens there if if it appears that you know equality you know, is enshrined or whatever, what happens? Do they stop being a favoured group? It doesn't appear to be that way. Oh, not at all. No, I mean, it's, that's the thing, it's a system of po politics and yeah. whatever happens in society, yeah. the system must keep going for, for people to continue in their roles. Mm. You know, if you're um, a liberal left person who, you know, takes a stance overseeing society, um, you know, if there's a situation where, as, as we have in our country, I think, you know, in a lot of ways where, you know, women are doing very well, especially young women, um, non-white people are doing well, especially certain groups like Indians and Chinese, you know, doing very well in society. But that doesn't fit the narrative. No. So if, if you're part of this system of diversity, as I call it, you can't play up to that or, or maybe if you do you can you can do it in terms of favoring those groups and saying aren't those those groups um, doing well and to be praised but it can never be praising the you know say British society or English society yeah. Uh, yeah. or Western society you could say oh, yes exactly well, I, this is an entirely Western thing isn't it pretty much although you know w with a globalized culture it has it has sort of got tentacles into everywhere. I mean, I guess um, I, I immediately thought of South Africa, mm. um, but you could say that's in a way part of the Western world. But I guess, you know, the whole world to an extent is yeah, Westernized yeah. now. But places like you know, Japan and China, they kind of find this sort of stuff incomprehensible, really. The thing is, is that, uh, you know, I mentioned at the top there that it's increasing influence. Uh, this seems to be going, you know, exponentially throughout all institutions. I mean, you know, right, you know, now into charities, into what have you. You know, I wonder, you know, how does that actually happen? I mean, you know, one doesn't, it's, one's not a conspiracy theorist or whatever, but, you know, how is this actually, how we arrived at the situation where apparently now even corporations, you know, HR departments, all the rest of it, now basically practice this particular approach, don't they? I think I think it's largely that, and obviously there's so many different angles, yeah. things going into it, but it's it's that point about um, you know it's, it's it's almost a tautology that um, this stuff has become completely dominant in society and there's very little counter narratives yeah. which are prevailing, um, and um, you know in in that sense. So if you're looking at uh, businesses, they, they tend to follow what's popular, you know. Um, right. So you know, it's purely window dressing in their case? Uh, to, to an extent, I think that, you know, there, 
the, the, the huge influence of these forms of politics is such that, you know, they are, they are serious about it. Um, yeah. And they're doing more than you might expect if they were just window dressing. But in terms of charities, I think if, if you look at um, charities or civil society in general, it's yes. overwhelmingly progressive and liberal left in character. I think you know if if you look at um, perhaps other versions of the left or you know conservatives, they've largely sort of abandoned civil society for yeah, me, yeah, yeah. and and it's allowed the progressive liberal left to basically prevail. And I think during the Labour years, Labour government years, New Labour, um, this this sort of expanded a hell of a lot, and through outsourcing especially. So, what do you mean by that? Explain. So a lot of a lot of uh, charities now, but also businesses, you know, out, government outsourcing services um, into the charity sector and into the business sector, yeah. and and that means that there's there's more basically political patronage on offer. Right. While if you're working in just through government, then you've got to rely on the civil service. Although of course the civil service has largely been taken over by this stuff as well. Um, but through, but through outsourcing to charities and you know handing out public money to charities, that meant that um, political activists could get more, could get more involved and get hold of public money and, and use it. And I think, if you look at the the charity sector now, at least that's kind of around politics, um, you can see that that so many of, of the people involved are like especially former Labour activists or at least are you know visibly politically connected from their past. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, I mean, like you, to talk about it as some sort of conspiracy. I don't, I don't see it like that. I kind of see it as almost happening by accident and, and in politics, uh, the Labour Party being in government, being very active in government and, and doing a lot of things. I mean, you, you used to be a Labour Party activist. Yes. Used to be, that's right. Isn't it? You're not yes, right, yeah. But, uh, you, you know, I think you mentioned in the book, the Labour Party has become entirely... Uh, control, if you like, now by identity politics, really. I mean, to the point where, you know, it wasn't, presumably they just got, what, impatient of waiting for working class people to, to maybe rebel or whatever it is, or what? Um, I, th I think largely through time, you know, if, if you look at the traditional Marxist view of history, yeah. where the pro proletariat, the working class, is the agent of history, which is going to mm. overthrow capitalism and bring about utopia on earth. Obviously, that ha that didn't happen, mm. and there were no signs of it happening. And even just on a more sort of prosaic level, you know, the working class were never, never aligned to that. Those, you know, the, the conventional forms of politics that you know progressive intellectuals tended to have. Mm. So, identity politics, as we see it now, has has kind of offered alternative groups to kind of put into that role. Yeah, you know, in, yeah. a, in quite an informal way, but you you often see in the way that these people talk, you know, the politicians and activists, that they do have sort of transcendental sort of utopian hopes for, for example, Britain becoming more and more diverse and more multicultural, yeah. um, and for women, you know, rising up in power. Mm. Um, that this is a, a good by definition, um, and uh, like I say, there's there's some real sort of truly utopian sort of hopes behind it. Is it sort of, uh, maybe a naive question, but is it a sincere desire on their part or is it entirely to break down what they see as power structures? 
Um, you know, because on the face of it, you could say, well, what's wrong in having more women in power? And all exactly. What, what yeah, there, there's some good aspects to it, yeah, of course, yeah. and there's some goodwill. Yeah. And um, I tend to see that it's, it's a mixture of so much stuff yeah. going on. There's, you know, there's naivety in one sense. There are some genuine sort of philosophical, ideological, sort of quite harsh beliefs about transforming the country and getting rid of you know, Englishness or even Britishness, but especially Englishness, um, and um, and destroying like white male culture. Mm. Um, but I think generally it's, you know, on the, on the everyday level, most politicians and activists really don't feel like that. Mm. It's it's more a matter of just fitting in and, and not causing trouble um, and aligning to the affiliations, you know, with, with the right groups. Because I just seem to remember, I'd say around about the 1980s, with Ken, you know Ken Livingstone, that this kind of the rainbow coalition of minorities—that's when I first became aware of it really taking shape. And it was sort of up to that point, the left was very much about, you know, trying to further the condition, looking after if you're working class people or whatever. It was around about then. Would you agree with that? That it sort of pretty much changed. Well, this, funny enough, this isn't something I've really looked into in my book. Right. I mean, really, in my book, I've deliberately didn't look to write history. Right. I look to write about how how it works now on an everyday level, sort of, you know, like I said before, like how the call and response sort of works. You know, what the cues are and what the consequences of this are. So Can really, with with that type of thing, I'm. I'm really not. You're probably more of an expert than I am. On Have you got any examples of, uh, you can give us from the book of is the way that the, the system stays in place, or an instance that comes to mind, maybe? Oh, sorry, of the the system. Yes, in in the way maintaining that, itself. Yes, exactly. Or, for example, you know how? Because I, I think look, the main point is really is that when, when you talk about the liberal left, uh, basically people. And I think they're right. Think that this is a relatively small number of people, right? How ca how come that a relatively small number of people can have such a massive effect actually on the culture of a country? Yeah, I wouldn't uh, say it's a small number of people at all. Really. And if we're looking at charities, if we're looking at public service, civil service, teaching profession, mm. obviously into universities, we're talking about lo very large numbers of people, and especially through the education system, mm. through indoctrination, um, for younger people coming out of university, you know, largely being aligned to those sorts of ways of thinking. So I'm, I, I don't think it's a small number of people at all. It's, it's huge. Um, and if you look on social media, yeah. Twitter, it's very, it's very clear to see that it's, it's huge. There's a, a piece in The Spectator by Toby Young this week, and he's talking about this is really going strong in America, isn't it? What we're talking about, the whole uh, diversity. Yes, yes. He's talking about it coming gradually here. And he mentions, for example, a statistic, uh, the 4,700 employees for the Department of Education here now all have to have unconscious bias, bias training. Would this be a part, this is a part of the system in a way, isn't it? Yes, and unconscious bias yeah. training is quite, is quite common now and is spreading not just through our public services, but you know, through the charity sector, and then in the charity sector into, in, you know, charities going in and indoctrinating. Uh, well, maybe that's a bit of a strong word, but um, well, perhaps attempting to indoctrinate businesses and business employees. So, um, 
Yeah, I, th I think there's, that's quite a good point. A lot of it does arise in America, whereas, you know, with yeah. so many things, it's a lot stronger, mm. a lot sort of more assertive and aggressive in America. Although we can see over here, we are following pretty, pretty heavily and pretty successfully in that sense. Did you, did you find it hard to get your book published? I mean, it's a, it's a very, you know, it's a, a, the publishing industry, I would say on the whole, is pretty left. Um, very left, in fact, and I think that what's happened over the past, certainly since the referendum, is that they've kind of doubled down. They haven't opened, they've kind of got, they've really sort of like battened down the hatches on that. Would, you, did, you didn't have any trouble getting published? Well, I, I, I did, and I, you know, for a while I, I tried to get an agent and completely failed at getting an agent. Um, I, didn't, I didn't go direct to many publishers. I was quite lucky in that I, you know, in that an opportunity came up with a very small publisher, but I but but I knew. I mean, I'd been writing on this stuff for years. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd written a hundred plus articles, mostly on identity politics, and it got reasonably well known. Yeah. And I got no interest at all from, and you know, especially from liberal left publishers. You know, relentless sort of ignoring and rejection. Yeah. And you just got to accept that. Um, but I do think of myself as quite lucky. Yeah. to have got through that and to have got it published even, like I say, with a very small publisher. You had some help uh, from Claire Fox, That's didn't right, you? yeah. What happened there? She just championed the, the, the project? Well, she read, I think, um, an article or two I'd written about Brexit and the arts. Um, and, and the arts? And the arts, yes. Oh, right. um, and she, she responded well to those and, and we met. And she said, yeah, she would, she would try and help me with, with the book, get it published. And, you know, a few weeks later, she wrote to a publisher, and and then I was lucky enough to get a contract. Um, so I owe I owe a lot to her, and she's one of my heroes anyway. But yeah. even more so with that. Interestingly, you were writing there about Brexit and the arts. I don't know what the particular thrust of your article was, but what certainly became clear is that the arts were like ninety percent pro Remain and what have you. I worked in the arts for a long time as a journalist and TV ma uh, program maker. And again, you, you, know, you had an extraordinary kind of uniformity of views. And I think that the identity politics and the system of diversity that you talk about in your book is very strong, is it, in the creative field? Very much so. Um, it's almost like they're the kind yes. of visual display unit for it in a, in a way. Yes, it's um, uh, in a sense, you know, the arts have become subject to politics. Yeah. And that's, that, you know, there's always been a close relationship and I wouldn't say that, you know, artists shouldn't be political, I mean the reverse. But when there's such a, a uniformity, a sameness and, and where actual messaging itself has become artistic, yes, in a sense, yes. or gets sold as art, you know, just sort of ranting about Nigel Farage or Boris Johnson, you'll, you'll find sort of exhibits doing that in, in art galleries and things. Uh, yeah. So, I, th I think there's, there's an extraordinary um, extent to which that has that has spread. Because, like like I say, it's always been around, and uh, you know, sort of with with modernistic art as well. You know, it's always it's always been quite political, but um, yeah, it's gone a lot further certainly. Do you think there's anything as well in the in the view that, for example? Um, you know, the 
the gay lobby achieved many of the things they wanted, you know, civil partnerships, marriage, what have you. Um, fine. But then sort of suddenly, almost out of the blue, comes transgenderism. It's almost like we have to quickly replace, you know, one group with another. Uh, I, I wouldn't see it like that again. I'd, I'd, I'd see it, you know, looking at the, the transgender lobby itself, seeing how other groups are being very successful using a certain model of maximising their victimhood, relentless hammering away political activism, um, you know, contributing very actively to political consultations, you know, yeah, for example, yeah, on, yeah, yeah. on the gender issue in government, to the extent that you've, you've had a Conservative government almost sort of repeating their mantras. I, th I think it's more, more than, like I say, copying that sort of, uh, that sort of way, that sort of approach. And again, like I say, with the system of relations, the liberal left or the liberal left way of relating to the world and relating to identity going, oh, here's, here's another example of what we support and what we protect. Um, and you, you remain victims regardless of your economic circumstance or whatever. That's the point with identity politics, I, isn't I th it? I think, I mean, I, it's, it's all very superficial, this stuff. It's surface level. Once you get into the reality of yeah. it, I mean, it, it, it kind of, it does fall apart a lot of the, mm. you know, the truth of it, the reality of it. So if you're, if that's your, your backup, you can't, you can't be going into the detail of it. Mm. You've just got to sort of discuss it on a, on a superficial sort of, surface level um, and if enough people do that around you and and relate in the right, right ways like I say then you know it doesn't really matter if it's nonsense yeah um, do you you mentioned at the beginning there John Cleese who's quite a, a, a recent example but you know what happens if you fall foul of this I mean that was a Twitter storm okay you, you can sort of almost Discount, well, not discount, but you know, it's Twitter, right? That happens on Twitter. But you know, what happens if you, in a work situation or in an institution, if you had qualms about this sort of thing, what would happen? Presumably, you know, you'd be put beyond the pale, wouldn't you? Well, there's cases happening all the time, you know, of, of people just of claim, uh, sorry, complaining about discrimination and taking to tribunals. And, and making complaints and people losing their jobs over it, and obviously some of those are going to be are going to be real instances of racism, etc., of nastiness. But a lot of it isn't. A lot mm. of it is just sort of casual remarks that don't completely align to the consensus or yeah. to the apparent consensus, which is about the favoured groups must appear as victims yeah. and and in need of protection. Yeah. So whenever someone from a favoured group, I mean, I give. The obvious example in my the introduction to my book of, of the Rotherham um, uh, child abuse, yeah. you know, mass mass child abuse cases, and uh, and in that you know you had a lot of people in Rotherham who knew what was going on and in, in public services who knew what was going on, but they were so afraid of the denunciations that were coming for for being racist that they wouldn't do anything. Yes. So you see one form of protection triumphing over another. So. The form of protection of of the, the the men who were committing these crimes, prevailing over the protection of children, and you know you could say largely an, another favoured group, yeah. girls, yes. but they didn't have in that circumstance anyone really on their side. Exactly. So so and then when 
actually that's a good example because when people might have pointed out things after like the MP did, didn't she? Uh, or wrote an article. Her name is it was Sarah, what is her name now, the MP? Well, Sarah Champion. Sarah Champion. Yes. She wrote a piece and you've not really heard from her since, have you? It's extraordinary. It's remarkable how it happens of, of suddenly people who don't align, you know. Mm. I, I said earlier to the consensus, but it's more just aligned to the, you know, the favoured, unfavoured distinctions. And if you come out and, and, and don't conform to that, then you're going to get put outside the system. Well, you, you have already put yourself outside the system of diversity, I would say. Um, so, so like you say with Sarah Champion, now she just doesn't really appear in public life. She was a junior minister for the government at the time. Sorry, for the, um, the Labour Party. That's right. Shad junior shadow minister. And uh, she, she lost her position very quickly. And we've barely heard of her since. And, and this, is, this is the way it works, but it's also the way it kind of has to work, you know, because otherwise this system of relations, like I talk about, it, it kind of falls apart. What is the prognosis? What, if you look to the future, how can this system, if you like, and be challenged or can't it, do you think? It's a very good question and a very difficult question to engage with an answer. And I, I tried to in my mm. book um, because, you know, we, we are talking about a, a dominant system of, of politics, which mm. is excluding other, other ways, just, just basic other ways of doing politics mm. um, in all corners of public life and even to a large extent in private life. So combating it, um, I mean, a lot of us do already, mm. for example, by writing articles, but you're always responding to what's being put out there. And there's so much being put out there at all times that you just can't keep up. No, yeah. I mean, I, I think sometimes you could easily write a daily newspaper of what's going on mm. with, in relation to progressive identity politics and also the backlash. Um, but the crucial thing is organisation, because if you like, they are organised. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's a large measure of their success, that they, they have institutions which are, are well funded and continually are producing reports, um, who have people who are, you know, are spokespeople in public life who are available to, to turn up. So we, f we find with that that like we said before, I think the progressive liberal left is kind of just appears to be dominant. It's always there. Yeah. It's always appearing in yeah. public life. Yeah. And alternative views are always kind of appearing almost as a, as a response um, and never sort of so much putting their own sort of standpoint out. So, I mean, one thing I'm, I'm really interested in is, is, is the way that identity politics uh, reduces standards yeah. in all areas. I mean, we, were talk we talked about art you know, the politicisation of art. Um, we could say democracy as well, with Brexit as well. Um, I, th I think uh, identity politics is, is wrapped up in the, in the whole Brexit affair. And it's a reason why so many left people turned against Brexit, mm, mm. because there was a politicisation along those system of diversity lines from the beginning. The Romain campaign was doing that. Um, so we've got art, um, democracy, uh, I, th I think just 
just on a wider notion, truth. Yes. Just the idea of truth. Yeah. Um, and we, we talked about Rotherham, but with so many of these, these affairs, these, these media storms which come out, and for example, with John Cleese, mm. the people commenting on it were, were not commenting on what he said at all. They were commenting on associations that they had made yes, exactly. with him mentioning Englishness and you know, not feeling that London is English anymore um, and interpreting that straight away him, of, of him being a racist. Mm. You know. And like, like I said before, if enough people support that and go along with that, it doesn't really matter if it's a lie. Mm. Or maybe lie is too strong a word, I would say it's, it's more bullshit because they're yeah. not... They're not really concerned with the truth. They're not really engaging with what is said and what is done. Um, so in terms of combating it, I think you're looking at, maybe that's a bit abstract and, and vague, but you are looking at institutions which are looking to tell the truth mm. and which are looking to promote, um, you know, promote the, uh, the pursuit of truth and of of, of protection of democracy and the promotion of beauty you know, through art, for example. And indeed books like yours, which are very, very important, Ben. Um, thank you very, very much for coming on. Um, it is called, by the way, again, The Tribe, The Liberal Left and The System of Diversity. You can get it on Amazon, is that right? Yes, it's, it's on, on Amazon, uh, also on the publisher's website if you, if you search for it. It's a very, very important book. Thank you very much, Thanks very ben. much. And uh, look forward to seeing you next time on So What You're Saying Is. Thank you. Oh, and by the way, please do subscribe.